Oh man, Jay, the new warriors. That takes me back. Oh, I know. Namorita, Night Thrasher, freaking Speedball, Miles. Speedball. Yeah, whatever happened to that dude? He was pretty fun. Oh. Oh, my sweet summer child. Is it bad? It sounds bad. It's pretty bad. Lay it on me. Okay. So, uh, remember Civil War? The one in the mid-19th century? No. No, the one about superhero registration. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Well, Civil War all started because a villain named Nitro exploded and killed a whole bunch of people while he was fighting the New Warriors. Ouch. Yeah, and Speedball was on the team at that point, and he just never really got over it. Did he go evil? Briefly, but that was a Dark Reign thing, so probably best to ignore. Mostly, he turned into Penance. Wait, the spiky red person who's Monet and sometimes her sisters? No, 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 not that Penance. This was just a new codename. And a new costume. Boy, was it ever a new costume. What kind of costume does someone named Penance wear? It was super emo, right? I mean, I assume it was super emo. Well, it was a big metal suit. Okay, not exactly my definition of emo, but to each their own. With 612 spikes on the inside. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 166 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And, uh, boy, do we have a story today that's going to challenge that definition. Oh, man. Okay, so we knew that the 90s was going to have some very 90s stuff, and then there was Kings of Pain, and the 90s had barely gotten their start, and then there was Kings of Pain. I... I just, there's a lot that I wasn't expecting here, and it was really ups. It was, it was more upsetting than I feel like the early 90s have a right to be. Yeah, seriously. I mean, this story went, went places, man. It got really dark, and it got dark in ways that weren't just, oh my god, this is funny, it's X-Men, it's soap opera, I have feelings. I guess it's not as funny, but still, ways, it got dark in like, I am aggressively upset that this got published at some points ways <laughs> kind of that but we're getting ahead of ourselves we'll get to all that stuff so speaking of kind of heavy stuff we put up our live rose city comic-con episode um a little over a week ago and we wanted to thank you guys again for being again just really amazing listeners that was an intense episode and it was an episode that kind of lent itself to potentially fairly heated arguments and there were some fairly heated arguments in the comments and by and large you conducted yourselves exceptionally civilly you listened you paid attention to each other's perspectives you sought each other's perspectives and i think most important a lot of you who were coming in a little confused took the time to consider perspectives that were really really foreign to you and to give them you know equal weight to yours and that was that was really neat it was really really cool to watch happen yeah we've talked about how our listeners are the best listeners in the world and part of that is flattery because you know we love it and we assume you love it but most of it is like yeah you really really are like we've seen the internet y'all we know what's out there and so when we say that you are in fact the best listeners of any podcast ever this isn't happening in a vacuum like 
you're actually the best listeners of any podcast ever. And it's really cool. And I, yeah, I think one of the reasons, one of the things that's coolest about it, and we talked about this actually in that episode is the, the, the range of perspectives that for us define the X-Men and the mutant revolution and the idea of it and coming together and sort of the, the layer of intersectional, you know, solidarity and, and mutual trust and just, I guess, willingness to hear each other that are fundamental to that. And that's something that you guys have exemplified for years for us. And that's really rare and amazing to get, especially online and especially in like nerd corners of online. You're so cool. Do you know how cool you are? It's a little unsettling. Yeah, I don't know how we manage to surround ourselves with like the best part of the internet just by making dick jokes about the X-Men, but apparently it works. So hey, if you wanna hang out with awesome people, make dick jokes about the X-Men, I guess. Yeah, we should really get a forum up and running because now that MZ is down, I feel like we don't really have something like that. And we should because, again, our listeners are just really cool and it's neat watching them talk to each other. I agree. Man, we should do a lot of stuff with that website now that you mention it. But um... we really should. I feel so I feel I feel like weirdly parenty about this. <laughs> Seriously, it's a little unsettling. All right. You still get them on the weekends, right, though? I mean, that seems reasonable. I don't have a lot of time anyway, so I'll just make sure we do some kick-ass stuff on Saturdays and Sundays. Speaking of weekends, we've got some big, big, big stuff coming up. We are going to be at New York Comic Con next weekend. It is October 5th through 8th. Our panel, despite what you might have seen on the site, is on Thursday, October 5th. It is at 4.15 p.m. Um, and I think it's time that we finally let them know why it's at that time and place, because we wanted to make sure that our two guests could be there. We are going to have... Oh my god, I'm sorry. I'm kind of freaking out even just saying this. We are going to have not only returning guest Chris Claremont, but newcomer to the show, one of the most influential voices on and off stage in the X line, one of our mutual favorite people in comics, possibly just the best person in comics, who we kind of wish was our mom. And now I'm getting creepy, so I'm just going to say it. Louise Simonson. Seriously, like, the two people I have most wanted to talk to about X-Men ever? We're going to have them on a stage with us. I, I, ah. Look, I've been on panels with, with Louise before. I've never even met them in person, so I'm really excited and also slightly nervous. Oh, dude, they are they are both super, super nice and super excellent. And I got to admit, part of why I'm excited about this episode is that filling 50 minutes has never felt easier or more daunting, I guess, in terms of just sort of wanting this conversation to last for about a week. So that is the weekend of New York Comic Con. And there's something the following weekend... That is is not a comics event precisely, but is kind of a super big deal for me and weird and huge, which is that um, I'm giving a TEDx talk at Harvard College. So that's a thing. That is a thing. Congrats, Jay. That's going to be awesome. It is. It's going to be deeply nerdy. Um, it is going to be less X-Men oriented than you might expect. But if you want to come to that, we'll stick a link in the visual companion there are as far as i know tickets still available i am told it is a delightful event it is also the day after my 35th birthday so presumably i will be announcing my candidacy for president of the united states i'm not actually going to do that i'd be a terrible president i mean i'd vote for you just saying don't you shouldn't do that <laughs> okay i'll just I write mean, in look, batman look last episode we established that you'd be a bad president this is the episode where we established that i would also be a bad president here's to both of us being terrible presidents but we're pretty good podcasters, so I feel like we should maybe move forward with that at this point and talk about Kings of Pain. Right, okay, so Kings of Pain, 
You know how in previous years we've had storylines that encompassed annuals from a bunch of different X-Books and sometimes non-X-Books? We had Days of Future Present, we had Atlantis Attacks, we had the Evolutionary War. Aw, I was going to make fun of Atlantis Attacks, but then you continued the list, so I guess I won't. Well, that's reasonable. But this year, which is to say 1991, the year that we're covering, we had Kings of Pain. Boy, howdy, did we. So I want to start with a question, even before we establish the status quo. Did we ever find out who the Kings of Pain actually are? I think they were a loosely defined metaphor from the last page that sounded like it would make for a cool story title. God fucking damn it. (laughs) Right? Well, okay, this story has a couple good things going for it. Number one is that Mike Mignola of Hellboy fame pencils uh, three of the four parts covers and inks the other part, so at least it looks kind of like his style. Yeah, this is during the brief window of Mike Mignola does all the covers, and it's great. Is this? Do you know when the Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom graphic novel that he painted came out? Because I feel like it's got to be around the same era. It might have been. Yeah, I have a copy, but it's uh, downstairs and I'm upstairs. Um, but yeah, that's pretty rad, too. Uh, so that's the thing. Oh, man. I totally should have stolen that when I moved to New York. <laughs> Victory, it's mine. You can borrow it sometimes. I'll fight you. Oh, man, you'd totally win. But anyway... I really would. I am way meaner. True. But anyway, the second good thing is that even if the story is bonkers and not often in a good way, Fabian Nicieza, who we've seen come on as the scripter for New Mutants around this era, writes it, and he's a pretty good writer. He's a delightful writer. Man, I miss what came before, but I really appreciate the sensibilities that he's bringing on now. I came into this, I remember Nicieza mostly with like the same vague resentment I saved for Liefeld in that I felt that he was, I associated him with the end of an era that I loved deeply. And no, no, he's brilliant. He is amazing and I love him and I actually deeply respect him as a writer after this. And not just because he tried to popularize Shatty as a um, nickname for Shatterstar. Oh dude, at one point Boom Boom calls Shatterstar Shatty Buns, which is even better. Holy shit! Right? (laughs) Wow, that was actually more appropriate than I meant it to be. Sorry. (laughs) Boo. But anyway, Nicieza is great because he's still working at slight odds with the artists he's with. There are points where it's pretty clear that he's kind of scrambling, but he does a very graceful job of it. He manages to make it a lot of fun in ways that I really, really appreciate. In some ways, I think he's a writer who's maybe a little bit better suited to the artistic tone and to the especially to the editorial dynamic of the time than the folks who came before him. Uh, yeah, I think, in, I think in a way that's true. But speaking of what came before, we should give some context. So, previously on X-Men. The X-Men themselves are off in space, as we covered in episode 165. But Scottish scientist Moira McTaggart has a handful of mutants hanging out at her co- compound on Muir Isle, all s- ensnared in the evil and sexy net of the Shadow King. Back in New York, the New Mutants are continuing their transition to X-Force. They are currently a guns and explosion-based strike force, whose series just ended as these annuals came out. Right. They're officially not the New Mutants anymore, but they don't quite have their new name yet, so we're going to call them the X-New Mutants. (laughs) Redundantly, because we think we're funny. And those guys are a mix of older members who were with the team in one case from the beginning, and some newcomers. You know, with most of these guys, we're glossing a little bit over who's on because we're going to be focusing on them a little later in the episode. With the New Mutants, you know, they're the team we're starting with. Maybe we should just talk about the team right now. Sure. So the newest members are Warpath, a former rival of the New Mutants and younger brother of the deceased X-Man Thunderbird. Feral, a cat lady who escaped the Morlocks. 
Domino, who's sort of the new team mom slash sexy mercenary. And Shatterstar, a bundle of blades, mullets, and pouches. And still around from the previous days of the team are Cannonball, Sam Guthrie, Boom Boom, Tabitha Smith, and from close but not quite the end of the New Mutants series, Cable, or Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, as he will eventually be revealed to be once that retcon has been in place. And I think we kind of get our first serious hints of it in this story. Uh, a little bit, depending on how you look at it, yeah. Uh, and speaking of the people that that retcon involves, X-Factor is also in the story. That's the original five X-Men doing their thing. They are the public-facing mutant team that's out there right now. And they are the one that we can say has remained extremely stable membership-wise. We've still got the original five X-Men. We have Cyclops, the currently codenameless Jean Grey, Beast, Iceman, and Archangel. Yep, and I believe this story may be the first time that she's officially just Jean Grey, not Marvel Girl. Could be wrong, but I believe so. Heralding an era of extreme codename confusion. Yup. So with all of that context out of the way, let's talk about the plot of Kings of Fucking Pain. Ew, is that actually what we're gonna call uh, it? No, I'm never gonna say that phrase again, in fact. <laughs> so, so the first chapter, anyway, is New Mutants Annual number 7. And uh, we have Guang Yap on art here. He did the post-Lifeveld uh, Extinction Agenda New Mutants art, and he's, he's pretty good. Yeah, he's fine. Honestly, the art throughout this crossover feels to me perfectly adequate. Uh, none of it is super standout exceptional, but none of it is bad, and all of it gets the narrative where it needs to go. So what happens in chapter one? Well, to begin with, the Alliance of Evil attacks a school, and it's been a while since we've seen these guys, so let's maybe reintroduce the Alliance of Evil, some of my very, very favorite villains, or rather one of my very, very favorite villains and some other guys. <laughs> right, so these guys first showed up back in X-Factor number four. Membership-wise, they have a dude named Tower. He's got long blonde hair and can also grow. I mean, his body, not his hair. I guess that too. I mean, I guess technically it doesn't grow in proportion to his body, though. True, true. We have the unimpeachably awesome, badass, and forever the best Frenzy, who has super strength, is semi-invulnerable, and has no time for your bullshit. We have Stinger, who's got electric sappy powers. And we've got two new characters around who aren't exactly part of the Alliance of Evil, but who are hanging out with them right now. And those are Harness, who has a sort of biokinetic harness. And they are, they are a new character. They wear big spiky armor. And with them is... Piecemeal, who's a kid, just dressed like a kid. He doesn't seem to enjoy being there. But I do especially love the contrast between the costumes of a Harness, who looks sort of like a sci-fi bondage butterfly, and this really normal, suffering child. It, uh, the juxtaposition works for me. You know what Harness looks like to me? What's that? Harness looks like the souped-up deluxe version of Strife. Oh man, sort of like how Professor Xavier, when he was the Shi'ar Strike Lord, or at least when the Skrull pretending to be him was, was sort of uh, the sleeker, simpler Strife. This is like the elaborate Strife squared. This is the version of Strife who comes in the action figure line where everyone is painted gold and has unlikely accessories. Oh, okay, yeah. They had a few of those for Wolverine. It was not great, but I still wanted them. Your definition of a few is, is very generous here. <laughs> yeah, well. Who we don't have is Time Shadow. Time Shadow used to be on the Alliance of Evil, and he's just not here. In the words of Cable later on, I don't know why he's not with them, and I don't care. Cable's harsh. He, Cable's Cable. We know him. And as I mentioned, they're attacking a school, but this is not just any school. This school is home to the best of the Moppets. That's right, I am talking about Artie, Leech, 
and the one and only Taki, the fledgling radical disability activist hacker badass who is my favorite forgotten X-Men character. Oh man, it's Pink Kid, Green Kid, and Taki. I love Pink Kid, Green Kid, and Taki. Oh man, seriously? No respect for Artie and Leech here? Dude, None? Pink Kid and Green Kid, those are like terms of endearment. That's what I thought of them as when I was a kid. Yeah, no, I remember you talking to me about Artie at one point and just describing him as this, um, this pink kid. Right, and, and, and Leech is green, and they look kind of like those uh, awesome little mint things that are very refreshing that they give you in restaurants sometimes. Oh my god. Right? I'm just saying, the coloring is dead on. No, no, what I'm saying here is that you might be kind of an abomination. Oh, well, I still think I'm right. Regardless, the last time we saw these kids was a little bit after Inferno. They were part of the X-Terminators, the, the team of uh, mostly wards of X-Factor that did their own thing and flew around and fought demons and were awesome. Before returning to their school, which is for basically a special education school for kids with special learning needs, Taki gives a fantastic, fantastic speech about the categorizations of learning disability in Exterminators. I'm going to link back to that in the visual companion to this post because Taki is fucking amazing and deserves way more attention than he gets ever. Well, as for right now, these kids recognize the Alliance of Evil. Artie, at least, was totally around when they used to show up. I think Leech may have been as well. So they figured they should get the hell out of here. And Taki does what he does best, what his mutant power is, and he rebuilds his wheelchair into a fancy UFO. And we've noticed this before, but I want to point out again, because it's getting worse and worse, that, man, his powers really do not take conservation of mass into account. They don't, but for him, I kind of buy it. His powers have always been that way. The fact that Forge can do that now, that bothers me. But Taki, Taki gets a pass. Yeah, Taki's power is basically making cool stuff, whatever rule of cool defines that to be. And unfortunately, in this case, it doesn't really matter because Tower immediately knocks his creation out of the sky. With his fast-growing hair. I mean, body. And the reason the Alliance of Evil is here, apparently, is that Harness is trying to force piecemeal the normal little kid to feed on... something. And it's not clear what it is, just that he doesn't want to. Now, it looks at first, or it looked to me like he was going to be feeding on mutant energy or power, but he's not. There's just something ambient there, something in the atmosphere that he can suck up. Unfortunately, that doesn't help our kids any. They all get knocked out of the sky, and Taki wakes up sometime after that, surrounded by former new mutants, headed by his old friend? Is she, do they count as friends? Eh. Boom, boom. And I gotta say, if I were to get knocked out by scary people and wake up in a hospital surrounded by the fledgling X-Force, I would just want to go back to unconsciousness at that point. Right? So I've been watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine a lot mm -hmm. lately, and I've, I have come to associate Boom Boom with Gina Linetti. I can totally see that. Right? Okay, can you not imagine Boom Boom saying, I was born for politics. I have great hair. And I love lying. You know, I kind of can. Right? She is the Gina Linetti of what's going to be X-Force. But now she's introducing the team, so let's see what she has to say about them. Well, we're kind of like the new New Mutants, because the old New Mutants up and went away. The big kahuna is Cable. He looks tough, but he's okay. Like, kind of like Major Dad, you know? The one with the Petey the Dog makeup on is called Domino our uh, mother figure, as it were. The big bohunk, that word again, who's secure enough in his masculinity to wear feathers is called Warpath. The one out of a Duran Duran video is called Shatterstar. Feral is the one who looks like Morris the Cat and is just as finicky and 
You know Sam already. Called Cannonball. Hey, Tak. Hang in there. Aw. Thank you for providing us with this helpful exposition, Boom Boom, and also for reintroducing the word bohunk, which apparently is a thing now? I mean, I wasn't that old in 1991. I guess it would have been about nine. I do not remember ever hearing that word outside of New Mutants. So I found the official definition of bohunk, by the way, which is an immigrant from Central or Southeastern Europe. That isn't the way Boom Boom uses that. It really is not. Well, if anyone's allowed to be confused about slang, it's probably her. Or any of the writers who write her. It's oddly specific, but after getting the lowdown from first Boom Boom and then in return from Taki, the former New Mutants head out to find out what the Alliance of Evil is up to. And we, the readers, get to find out what some other people are up to. Meanwhile, at the Genetech Research Facility... A name that has literally never been given to any non-supervillain organization. A bunch of staff are engaged in some impressive moral acrobatics. Because, see, here's the thing. The energy signatures at the Alliance of Evil Attacks happen to match a project that the Genetech scientists have been working on for a mysterious and unknown client. They literally refer to this person as their mysterious employer. Like, you know that's a bad sign if, you're, if you can actually call the person that. Especially given that in a company meeting, they talk about how they're sure their contractors' intentions can be nothing less than noble. Like, who are these people? Are they not aware that they live in the Marvel Universe? For serious. Also, they apparently have to race whoever's doing these crimes so that they can finish the project first. At no point in this do they think, maybe we should shelve this. Maybe we should slow down... Find out who we're working for and why we're doing this and why someone else is rushing to complete these things. Like, for instance, just, you know, as a random idea, maybe they're trying to bring an unkillable supervillain back to life. To Genetech's credit, they do at least sort of take some steps to being responsible later. No. Well, anyway, the other side of things, who maybe is even worse, is... IDIC. So IDIC, I'm just going to put this out there right away, is cover corporation for AIM. And I have never loved advanced idea mechanics more than I did in the moment when they named their shell corporation after the Vulcan principle of infinite diversity and infinite combinations. That's actually kind of awesome. They seem like a sort of progressive group of super scientists. This is why they end up getting along so well much, 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 much later with Roberto da Costa. It's true. Oh, and if you haven't been reading U.S. Avengers listeners, which uh, stars Roberto da Costa leading a version of AIM, you totally should. It's goddamn delightful. But at IDIC headquarters, IDIC HQ, if you will, a couple of unnamed mastermind types play some symbolic chess. You can tell it's symbolic because they completely flout the traditional rules of chess. Maybe they just don't know how to play chess. I really like that idea, but considering the two characters, I assume at least one of them does. Well, anyway, they're in shadow, so we don't see who they are, it just adds to the mystery of the whole thing. Now, as the chess game is going on, and as the former New Mutants, the old New Mutants, the ex-New Mutants, whoever the hell they are, as they're figuring out how to handle it, the Alliance of Evil decides it's time to take little piecemeal to Niagara Falls for a fun family vacation. But the New Mutants, having figured things out for reasons, are there waiting for them. There's a long conversation about things that it's really, really not cool to call your indigenous opponent and or teammate during fights, after which most of the Alliance of Evil escapes, but the ex-New Mutants manage to capture Tower, and with the intel he gives them, head to Genetech, because it's heist time. 
Well, I mean, sort of. I'm not really sure you could call what the New Mutants do a heist. Okay, I want to talk about this because this is important to me because it's hilarious and terrible. I feel like I just summed up a lot of my values in that sentence. <laughs> I think you kind of did. Just put that on your business card. Jay Edden, hilarious and terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, I really should. <laughs> Speaking of which, I'm currently job hunting. If you're in the New York area and you want to hire me, you should do that because I really need a job. So there's this scene in the Pirates of Penzance. This is relevant, <laughs> trust me. I'm, I'm not going foggy. I'm with you here. This is relevant. Where the the pirates are going to go attack, you know, the town. They have decided, fuck this. We're we're pulling a a proper on land heist for complicated reasons involving leap years. And basically, Gilbert and Sullivan are great, and you should mm -hmm. all listen to them. But really racist, really sexist, really Victorian. Anyway, so there's this song where the pirates are singing extremely loudly about how stumpy they are. <laughs> That's totally X-Force. That is totally X-Force. So X-Force decides they're going to pull the smooth B&E, followed by two pages that are roughly half sound effects. I like Boom Boom's line here. Pretty subtle approach. Did anyone try a doorknob first? So I think one of the things that works here that you were mentioning, Jay, when we were talking, is that... The comics really lampshade how very X-Force X-Force is. Like, it calls out how over-the-top, unnecessarily explodey they are, and so that kind of makes it okay. Right. So we've still got a writer who's putting in dialogue, you know, after getting the art. And the thing I like about Nasesa is he does a great job of contextualizing and writing around some of the more ridiculous stuff by having the characters themselves call it out, as Boom Boom does here. Totally. So what happens when they get inside? Well, they fight a whole lot of security guards, and then they find themselves in a big fancy machine room that may or may not look like the inside of a VCR, and toe-to-toe -to -toe with none other than the New Warriors. Who are the New Warriors, you might ask, as we go into New Warriors Annual Number 1? Well, we'll tell you who they are. Miles will tell you who they are, because I have no fucking idea. Okay, so there are two important new warriors. The first one is Firestar. Hey, we love Firestar. Oh, I know who that is. Emma Frost blew up her pony. Emma Frost totally blew up her pony. But now Firestar is on her very own superhero team, which is great, because the last time we saw her, she was in Emma Frost's Hellions, and nobody should really be there. So she's great. We also have Night Thrasher. Now, I don't know very much about Night Thrasher. He was an African-American hero at this time, and, you know, I'm always in favor of seeing them, especially when there were fewer. My entire context for Night Thrasher is that amazing Dwayne McDuffie pitch about the, the Teenage Negro Ninja Skateboarders team pitch, where he goes on a spectacularly dry tear about how the majority of the black characters Marvel has recently introduced have been black kids on skateboards. Well, Night Thrasher at least isn't on a skateboard here, or in the trading card of him that I had that I fell in love with and did my best to replicate like a whole bunch of times. He's got like this futuristic hockey mask thing and this sweet body armor, and he just looks badass. He seems pretty badass here. If, if kind of nebulous, the New Warriors do not get particularly thoroughly characterized here. But I have a question about this lineup, um, about one particular character in it, and that is about Marvel Boy. Uh, Marvel Boy, yeah, he was like a telekinetic, and that's all I know about him. So is this Novar, like the current Marvel Boy? I think it was a different dude, but I'm really no new warrior expert, but he's pretty awesome. And we also have Nova, Namorita, Speedball, from the Cold Open, Cord, and Silhouette. 
And Cable, for once, decides to show some restraint. He radios Domino to find out who these kids are. He's asking questions before shooting. I'm so proud. He's growing as a person. But he does clarify, I am shooting now, but just to keep them back. I'd hate to kill these punks if they were on our side. Cable really has grown. Ah, he's the super violent badass dude who's like, I'm not going to be violent, but I gotta rationalize it in a really badass way. As his eye glows as if to emphasize. So there's fighting and bantering and fight bantering and teenage flirting and other teenage stuff. This part actually really feels like New Mutants, which I appreciate. And Firestar actually remembers Cannonball, which I appreciate because, man, that was a weird little miniseries. But then the manager of the lab comes in and tells them to stop fighting, so they do. Plus, Domino mentions to Cable over the radio that she's found out that the New Warriors are made somewhat of mutants, and also Cable and a New Warrior named Cord recognize each other. So, you know, no more fight flirting. Now, I want to talk about what happens when Cord and Cable recognize each other, because there are layers. Mm -hmm. There are so many weird layers. So Cord calls Cable Winters. Uh... Not catching that one. All right, there are two ways you can take this in context of the later retcon. The first is that it's a really kind of dopey pseudonym you use if your last name is Summers. Right, right. The second is that it's the last name of a prior established X-Men character. And that's Jack Winters. Jack Winters? Was that the Diamond Thiefy guy? Yeah. The one that raised Cyclops when Cyclops was a ne'er-do-well stealing stuff. No, Cyclops lived with him for like two months, but um, he is the one who Cyclops ended up working for after he ran away from the orphanage after blowing down half of it with powers. So Jack Winters is a dude who went variably by Jack of Diamonds and the Living Diamond. He is a petty thief. He's a very, very low-level telepath who basically lured Cyclops in after Cyclops ran away from the orphanage after he, you know, blew a big chunk of it down. So this dude's deal is that he was trying to turn himself into Living Diamond via nuclear radiation because it was the 60s and people did dumb shit like that and didn't die of cancer. But the point is, he's a really significant, really fucked up character from Cyclops' past, and the idea that Cable was running around using this as a pseudonym is one of those details that takes on a ton more significance once he gets retconned into having been Nathan Christopher. Wow, I, I would not have made that connection. Well done with your Summers Family nonsense intuition. I have my moments. Right? Well, anyway, uh, all of that confusion aside, Genetech explains themselves, so they've been working on creating a, quote, DNA matrix for a cellular mix which would become a self-reproducing, self-replicating growth culture. So, like, cells that divide? I mean, I guess so. It's unclear. But they found out that the Alliance of Evil, who is very specifically not working for them, has been going after the same energy. Obviously, they can be up to no possible good. Well, you know, regardless, Genetech did at least hire the new warriors to uh, try to figure out what was going on, sort of. So give them a little credit, I figure. Now, the ex-New Mutants and New Warriors see a common purpose in that neither of them is overtly evil, and they decide that they're going to team up at this point. And the first thing they're going to do once they team up is bust Frenzy out of prison. Right, so hybrid team number one of three uh, goes and literally breaks her out of prison, interrogating her by dangling her out of a helicopter over the prison yard until, they, until she gives them information on her actual boss, because they're extreme. 
I feel like Frenzy would have turned good a lot earlier if the good guys hadn't been complete assholes to her for so long. Seriously. But she does say that in fact it was AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics, who hired her, they had lied about Genetech, and she gives the New Mutants and the New Warriors an address. At which point they drop her anyway, because they're extreme, and also because she's tough and will survive. Still uncool. Totally uncool. So what about hybrid team number two? What are they up to, Jay? Now, I've been coming up with different names for these guys, like the New Warriors Mutants, and the New Mutant Warriors, and the New Warrior X-Force Mutants things. None of them are very good, so I'm not going to use any of them for now. But... Hybrid team number two has decided that it is time for the explodiest, attackiest, most violent, most hella sound effectsy infiltration ever. I really love that the new Warriors members, as they watch the New Mutants just blow everything up and yell a lot, uh, describe the New Mutants as the, a very Reagan-era group, which, you know, Reagan's administration had just ended, all the New Warriors mentioned that their dads voted for Reagan. It's actually kind of a great scene, if one that's a little bit lost to time if you weren't around for it. Yeah, oh, that's a good descriptor. I feel like that's that's some kind of oblique shit-talking, which I deeply appreciate. But in any case... They find out that AIM is making hollow transparent LMDs, those are life model decoys, fake people, to store some kind of energy. So that's weird. Meanwhile, hybrid team number three is heading to the X-Mansion, which has been re-secured for some reason. Somebody turned the security system back on. That part's not really very clear. But as they flirt and argue about how to get in, Farrell decides she's just going to dodge through the laser grid. She would have done really well in that first Resident Evil movie, I'm just saying. And they find out, using the technology inside, that Genetech got the information they provided everyone with from Muir Isle? So that's kind of weird. That's the Scottish home of Moira McTaggart, mutant genetic research. Uh, Miles, 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 Miles. I'm gonna let you finish. Uh Uh-huh. But, first of all, Parker did the laser grid infiltration better than anyone else ever Ah. in season one of Leverage. Legit. Haven't seen it, but I believe you. Oh, she did. She fucking did. Look it up. The first David job. Second, the X-Mansion that you were describing is in fact entirely subterranean at this point, and it's just the basement. That's it. That's all I was going to say. Go ahead. Okay, well, fair enough. But regardless, they figure all this out. Uh, Interestingly enough, because Boom Boom is apparently a computer whiz, which is a nice little touch that I kind of appreciate. So... The various hybrid teams have all gotten the information that they've sought, sort of. I'm not saying this plot makes a ton of sense, but let's just go with it. In the meantime, in Anchorage, Alaska, and then Tokyo, Japan, Harness is going around forcing piecemeal to eat more and more energy, and it's not going too well for piecemeal. He looked like a normal little kid before, and he's just getting visibly more and more painfully, agonizingly bloated and uncomfortable, screaming about the pain of it all. He also appears to be aging, although that might be a foible of the coloring of the additions I was reading and the way it had faded. And he's also wearing a sweatsuit that says toxic parents on the chest, which is real appropriate and also some foreshadowing. Yep, remember that one. So, Harness is just being a total jerk to him. I mean, on the upside, one reveal that we did get if we'd been paying close attention was that Harness is a rare lady jerk in comics. Boom Boom uses female pronouns for Harness, and then nobody ever comments on it again until toward the end. So I noticed that, and then I noticed that later on, different characters were using male pronouns for Harness, and I wasn't sure until that final reveal, which we'll get to a little bit later in this episode. Right. So... Anyway, she's going around body-shaming piecemeal, talking about how tubby he is, even though she's the one making him eat. And anyway, you shouldn't body-shame people. There are many different healthy kinds of bodies, and they're all awesome. Harness, come on. Unless 
unless they're into it and there's, you know, consensual stuff going on, which obviously there isn't because this is a kid and just this is, I think I mentioned at the beginning that I kind of dislike this entire crossover. And this is, this is part of why. There is a lot in it that just, that doesn't need to be there and that just is uncomfortable and fucked up. And a lot of it centers around this particular kid. It's going to get worse and worse as we go. And I, I almost, I feel like we should have put a content warning at the beginning of this episode. And in fact, I think, I think we should in the episode copy. But yeah, um, it just gets darker and darker from here. On the upside, there is some dark humor to it. Like as Harness keeps yelling at piecemeal to eat it all up, eat it all. It's like the clean plate club from hell. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, the teams reconvene, and their findings show that the energy that they've been tracking was actually centered in, or at least there's a highest concentration of it in Edinburgh. So that's interesting, because Edinburgh is right near Muir Isle. Remember the place that some of this information apparently came from? The plot thickens and converges. Okay, to be fair, a lot of shit has gone down at Muir Isle, but using the Xavier School and Muir Island computers, the ex-Warriors company are able to connect it to a single specific mutant. That is Kevin McTaggart. Holy shit, that's Proteus. That's one of the most powerful mutants the X-Men ever faced, like, way back in the day. Like, back in Uncanny X-Men number 125 through 128. I recall Colossus having killed Proteus fairly thoroughly. Right, Proteus had this sort of metal allergy. Colossus punched him, Proteus died, Colossus agonized, it was all very well done. Proteus was also a character with some real fucked up underpinnings in terms of story dynamics, and that unfortunately carries through real hard in The Kings of Pain. Yeah, the deal was Proteus was the son of Moira McTaggart, and her jerky, rapey husband Joe McTaggart, and the story implied that the reason Proteus was so evil was because he was born out of rape, which is an uncomfortable concept. It's not just an uncomfortable concept, it's a really fucked up, really unfair concept, and... Something I really hate about the story, and something we're going to see as it progresses, is the intense vilification of kids who are products of or victims of abuse. This is not okay. This is not a cool message. This is a real fucked up story. For serious. And we're in part three of it now, on Kenny X-Men Annual number 15. However, the X-Men, they're off in space. They're off in space doing the stuff we talked about last episode. So instead, it's going to be the folks on Muir Island, who are currently semi-possessed by the Shadow King. What that means in practice is that they're all very evil and very sexy. That's sort of the Shadow King's deal. Well, and it's also how his, his possession manifests, in particular, on Muir Island. So let's talk really quickly about who the evil, sexy Muir Islanders are. So some of them have been there for a while. Others, this is our first time seeing that they are on Muir Island. Of course, we have Dr. Moira McTaggart, the evil and sexy scientist. Multiple man Jamie Madrox, who is an evil and sexy guy who turns into more guys and is thus the perfect inverse of Team America. We have Polaris, Lorna Dane, who is evil, sexy, and also super strong and huge right now because Zaladane took away her old powers and gave her these kind of, it's weird. It's complicated. We've also got Legion, David Holler, the son of Charles Xavier, who has many varyingly evil and sexy personalities, each with its own evil and sexy powers. 
and Siren, Teresa Cassidy, Banshee's evil, sexy daughter. Although these characters are less evil and sexy than they normally are, because the captions helpfully tell us that the Shadow King has decided to release his control over them somewhat during this story. Why does he do that? There's no reason. It's pure narrative convenience. And I kind of enjoy that the story doesn't even try to justify it. It's like, you know what? The Shadow King can't really influence them for the plot to work. Fuck it. Let's just move on. So remember in college when we were playing that Orpheus game and our GM Harrison had this rule that if you weren't there, your character had just fallen down a manhole and it took the full session for them to get out? Uh, yeah, yeah. This feels like that. So the Shadow King just fell down a manhole, his player couldn't make it to this session, and so he doesn't get to influence everyone? Yeah, pretty much. Well, he influences them a little bit, because Moira sees the new warrior mutants approaching, and decides that clearly the best option is to try to shoot them down, because this is inconvenient, and she is evil and sexy, and she just wants things to go her way. The New Mutants manage to survive this attack, at which point they get in a big fist fight with all of the inhabitants of Muir Isle. However, that doesn't last- Um, an evil, sexy fist fight. An evil, sexy fist fight? But that doesn't last too long, as Cable points out that the Muir Islanders are really outnumbered and outgunned. Moira reluctantly surrenders and lets the good guys explain what's up, which is helpful. You know, it's nice. She's evil, sexy, and prudent, which is a rare combination. And in fact, that prudence does lend her to uh, say that the Muir Islanders will help the new warriors and new mutants against Proteus. But I have an objection in this scene right here. I mean, we have a mini Fallen Angels reunion. We have Boom Boom, Siren, and Multiple Man all in one place. And, like, nobody comments on it. I feel like they probably haven't seen each other since Fallen Angels. I want some awesome hugs, even if they're evil sexy hugs. No. Can you imagine a more awkward reunion? Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I reabsorbed that dupe, sorry. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, that would be kind of weird. But still, I mean, something. Yeah. I love Fallen Angels. No, no, it would be so awkward. I assume that those kids have all decided to never speak of that book again. Well, we have no such compunction. We'll talk about it all the time. But meanwhile, back in Edinburgh... Piecemeal is absorbing a whole fucklot of energy. And back in the evil mysterious room... The sinister chess game, lowercase sinister, by the way, I'm using the adjective, not the proper noun here, continues apace. Also, one of the players moves enough into the light to reveal himself as Gideon. That is the top-knotted fellow who appeared randomly and invasively at the foot of Sunspot's bed to feed him ice cubes and or inform him that his father had been killed in the middle of the night at as he didn't mention there, Gideon's machinations. He is super evil, and he is going to turn out to be one of the upstarts, which we're going to discuss as little as we can get away with. Well, anyway, the evil, sexy new ex-warrior mutants engage piecemeal and harness near Edinburgh, and there's a big fight. Now, this fight lasts a real damn long time. But in it, only two really important things happen. The first... Harness is unmasked as Piecemeal's mother, which really adds this whole sheen of terrible child abuse to the whole proceeding, so that's a thing. And second... Namorita refers to Thunderbird and Polaris as the Peck Twins. Okay, that's pretty great. But I think there is a third delightful thing, which is the way Speedball responds to the strategy Moira McTaggart has, which involves multiple force fields and energy and bullshit, which is... I love this kind of crazy, half-baked, pseudo-scientific hero plan thing! So say we all, Speedball. So say we all. 
But unfortunately, the entire extended fight sequence is in vain. Piecemeal successfully merges with Proteus, and then they explode, bringing us to X-Factor Annual number six, King of Pain. So this has Terry Shoemaker on art, and I like Terry Shoemaker. He's a kind of very solid, perpetual fill-in artist, and I'm always happy to see him. He's reliable. He's consistent. He's like, I don't know, he's, he's, he's like the shepherd's pie of fill-in artists. Not fancy, but you know what you're getting, and you know it's going to be solid and, and sustaining and probably have at least three food groups involved. Ooh, now I want shepherd's pie, but there's no time for shepherd's pie because X-Factor just randomly shows up in their X-Jet. They've decided to join the crossover with very little fanfare, presumably something-something scanning something-something, and they're flying toward this sweet neon wireframe reality warp thing that apparently has replaced Edinburgh due to Proteus. As I understand, the reason they decide to show up is that Cyclops realizes he is the only person still on Earth and aware of his past, or at least parts of his past, who's dealt with Proteus before. Everyone else is dead or amnesiac or in space. Right? Well, the, the gravity of the situation is also sold pretty well, because what do you do when you want a scene to seem serious? You have a bunch of other superheroes on monitors talking about how serious it is. And in fact, we have Captain America from the Avengers, Captain Britain from Excalibur, and Red Guardian from the People's Protectorate, all talking about how this is a big deal, and they're sure Cyclops and X-Factor can handle it, but if not, they should call them. Alright, here's the thing. I still can't take this seriously. Why's that? Well, Miles, that's because if there's anything I learned from the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga, it's that there's one man that we can rely on to let us know when the Marvel Universe is in serious peril. Oh. One man whose eyes are perpetually on sky and earth scanning perpetually for any potential threat. One man whose vigilance we can credit with keeping us here and alive and informed. And that one man, who is absent, I will note, from the sequence, is none other than Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau. I wish Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau was here right now. I feel like this whole situation would have played out a lot better with his kind yet firm wisdom, with his world-weary yet compassionate outlook on humanity. Peter Corbeau, save us from the 90s! That man would have swum across the Atlantic Ocean, pulled out his goddamn satellite, and I don't know, he would have done something amazing. It would have been great. Unfortunately, Peter Corbeau must be busy... <sighs> Because X-Factor's plane gets shot down and explodes, they telekinetically eject into what seems to be an episode of Reboot, and they face off with Proteus after some amazing dialogue from Beast. Alright, rewind a little bit, because you're going to have to explain Reboot to me. I accept that our listeners might have been aware of the popular culture of our youths, but I, on the other hand, was raised by kind of shut in academics, so you're going to need to help me out. Oh here. man, Reboot was this TV show, and it was all computer graphics, which were a big deal at the time, and it was kind of like set inside a computer, and it was actually kind of awesome, and I think it came back recently, or maybe it's about to come back, but the point is, it looked kind of like this. On a scale from the Harlan Ep Ellison episode of X-Files to Hackers, where would you put it? Uh, I mean, probably closer to Hackers, but very, very earnest. Hackers is earnest. Exactly. That's why it's close. Uh, but any Hackers is so earnest. I have so many feelings about Hackers. Man. Hackers is a fine movie with a legitimately amazing soundtrack. Hackers is a stealth masterpiece of queer cinema, and I will initiate duels in defense of its honor. I certainly wouldn't disagree. But anyway, uh, that beast line. Trapezoids. Hexagons. 
The expanded landscape measured in the femtometers. Incredible. I feel like I'm being assaulted by the seventh grade trig books. And indeed, this is very different from the almost fluid melting reality we've seen around Proteus in the past. This is all very geometric and orderly and 90s computery looking. So that's a thing and that's going to be a thing. Yeah, we're going to learn more about the context for this later. But regardless, Proteus has the reins at this point as he is happy to express. We are the reality you stand in. Accept that fact. Don't engage us in pointless combat. To which Iceman replies, Hey, pointless combat is what we do best, buddy. <laughs> I love it. Well, there's a big fight, and despite Beast's metal gauntlets, because, you know, that used to be Proteus' weakness, Proteus effortlessly defeats X-Factor and continues his plan to bring this geometric order to the entire world. And he starts by teleporting the X-Men and X-Factor to all of the other heroes... The New Mutants, the New Warriors, the Muir Island folks, and so forth. We've got, I think, a total of 24 heroes at this point. I do really appreciate that we periodically get intro pages to everyone. Right. Seriously. And we also get a helpful exposition dump for anybody who happens to have missed the last chapters. I mean, good luck making sense of it even with that exposition, but still. And between Jean's largely suppressed but still kind of there telepathy and Legion's actual telepathy our heroes are able to figure out what's going on. While Proteus was technically dead for the last 149 issues of Uncanny X-Men, he was able to find the order and structure that he'd never had in life. And he's decided he wants to share this revelation first with Piecemeal, with whom he's bonded, and then with the world. I gotta say, that's actually a kind of legit, believable motivation for this character. Like, good job, Nicieza. Yeah, so... This is where it gets real not okay, because Cyclops realizes here that the way for Proteus to get what he wants, really the only way for him to get what he wants without destroying the world, is for him to die again, at which point the world will go on, but Proteus will also have peace and, and order. But... But also that none of them have the power to kill Proteus, which means the only technical solution to this situation is to convince a teenager to commit suicide. So that's the thing. I mean, I know people talk shit about Scott Summers. In this particular story, it is 100% justified. So I will actually go to the mat for Cyclops here. Okay, let's hear it. Cyclops realizes that this is the simple solution. But when he actually presents it to Proteus, when he goes to talk to him, he's just really upfront about what he's worked out. He says, okay, this is the situation. These are the possible outcomes of it. These are the options. It's important that this choice be yours. But before we get there, of course, we have to have a big debate between all of the various 24 heroes as to whether this is an acceptable solution. And it's actually kind of interesting seeing how everyone sides. Some things are surprising. Cable says, no, that's not okay. But I think my favorite part is actually Archangel, who says that Proteus's personalities are too far gone and Jean Grey points out, hey, X-Factor didn't think Archangel was too far gone, so come on, dude. Right! So what bothers me even more there is Archangel's reasoning, because Archangel is literally pulling out the fact that part of Proteus, or actually that both parts of Proteus, the parts of Proteus who are Proteus and the ones who come from piecemeal, were abused as reasons that they're irredeemable. And that is 
absolutely an unacceptable argument. That is so utterly, utterly, profoundly, ethically bankrupt and wrong. In, in I, I, sorry, I am actually, I'm actually get, legitimately getting really, really upset at a fictional character right now. I mean, fair enough, but I gotta give the story credit for making it very clear through Jean's sympathetic and well-reasoned counterpoint that Archangel is wrong, and a dude with as much internalized self-loathing as Warren Worthington has at this point, like, yeah, I can see him being that level of fucked up that he would see things that way. You know, it's probably good in context that Jean is willing to patiently explain this, but god fucking damn it, Warren Worthington III! Eh, I wouldn't recommend punching Warren in the face. You just get blue paint on your hands, or maybe, like, flechettes embedded in your knuckles or something. His face has no flechettes. Oh, okay. Just blue paint. I mean, I know it's not actually blue paint, but I think it's funnier if it is. Look, you don't have to punch him in the face. You can just tell him to go fuck himself and that grown-ups are talking at this point. Well... Anyway, the X-teams don't have much time to finish their argument because they're teleported back, but not before Proteus confronts his two mothers, Moira McTaggart and Harness, saying that it's better this way, this recreation of the world, better than the control and the abuse that they each thrust at both Kevin and Gilbert. And he tells them, We create a world where everything has a place, a reason for being. You can't be excluded because you're different or weak or confused. Indeed, we're creating a reality where everyone and everything has a clear reason and function for being. So what I'm getting here is that Proteus has two mommies and both of them are pretty bad. Kind of that, yeah. Moira's at least trying. Harness is still being terrible. But still, and that's when the heroes are teleported back and reappear and offer their various arguments. Proteus, at this point, has three options. The first is to keep doing what he's doing, just fuck up the whole world, make everything super rigid and ordered, basically become the true friend that we'll see later in New Mutants. Right, and the second is to use those synthetic energy shell life model decoy bodies that AIM created, that way he could just live among people and be a person and learn and grow. Now, that raises a couple questions. The first is how many of them he would need, and the second of which is how quickly he'd burn through them. We know he goes through live bodies very, very fast. So, you know, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about, you know, standard LMDs with just creamy Proteus filling, or...? <laughs> as much as I love that concept and phrase, I'm pretty sure what they talk about here implies that he'd be okay just hanging out in probably one of them. He would persist. But he's just too screwed up, is what he says. And the third option is the one that Cyclops proposed, which is that he has the option to get exactly what he wants without inflicting it on everyone else, to return to the state of ordered oblivion that he's basing this on. And I should say, you know, the, the, when, I, when I say telling a teenager to kill himself, this is a character who is already dead. Or at least half of whom is already dead, which complicates the ethics of it. And yeah, there is no okay outcome here. There is nothing good that's going to happen in this story, just so you know. Like, no one, no one gets a happy ending at this point. And I think that's a solid premise, having this ethical debate about which is the least bad option. I think Nastasia handles it pretty well, even if it's pretty messed up and very 90s. Yeah, it's easy to be really glib about this and to look at it as right and wrong choices, but... It does a pretty good job, and I will give it credit for doing a pretty good job, of presenting the kind of complex moral equation and the emphasis on personal agency and choice that at this point I think have become hallmarks of X-Men. 
Right, and Proteus's mothers weigh in. Moira says that Proteus should do what he needs to be happy but leave the world alone, basically the suicide option. Harness, who is generally a terrible person and a worse parent, says, no, no, he should use his power to use people the way that he himself has been used specifically by her, so I'm not sure what she's hoping to get out of this scenario. I think she's just a jerk, basically. But Proteus agonizes. He wants to be normal and loved, but that's impossible after everything he's been through and given the nature of his existence. I feel like you've kind of honed in on the fundamental tragedy of Proteus, which is that he sees normal and loved as mutually necessary options. Exactly. He's everything that the X-Men try to tell people you don't have to be. Their whole point mm. is you can just be you and you can be loved. You can be valid. Yeah, normal is an overrated concept. The world is fundamentally disorderly and complicated and difficult. And, you know, much as I hate to give Cyclops credit in this, considering what he's actually advocating... Yeah, you're not going to get that rigidity and true order in real life. That's not something that you can have without either reshaping the entire world to your will or abandoning it. And in fact, that's kind of what Proteus decides, that even if he could somehow fit into the world, that still wouldn't give him what he needed after everything he's been through, after all of his experiences. And so he says goodbye to his mothers and leaves the world behind, effectively dying, and reality reforms. Cable is furious. He doesn't think this is a remotely acceptable conclusion, which is a valid stance. And he's especially angry with Moira, which is kind of ironic because she is the one of them who kind of recognized her kid's agency and right to make a choice after restricting them for that long. And that's exactly what she says in response, that she did care about her son, and that's why she encouraged him to end it. But in that panel, we also see the specter of the Shadow King hanging above her head, so... Maybe he influenced her? It's hard to say. Arguably, there are zero right answers or good choices in this story. Which brings us to the conclusion, and our two masterminds playing chess over this, who are Gideon and motherfucking Toad. You know, the guy that hops around from the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, the guy that's really never been in charge of anything? I actually do like that he's getting more of a focus here, and we'll see more of that in the 90s, but yeah, surprising. Okay, okay, hey. He had his own theme park, all right? That is a very good point. It was in Latveria, wasn't it? Hell yeah, it was. Also, New York, kind of, it's complicated. Yeah, well. So it turns out, their whole game, Gideon had been trying the plot with AIM. You know, the hollow bodies. He wanted to mass-produce Proteuses to gain power. But Toad had been using Genetech to use their science-y biology stuff to help Proteus be a normal living mutant who would then join the Brotherhood. Neither of those things really worked out, so they call it a draw. And close with a final toast, because someone had to work the story title in somewhere. Gideon starts it off. To the kings of life, the kings of death, and everything in between. And Toad finishes. To the kings of pain. Whatever the fuck that means. Seriously, I don't understand what it means. But I guess it sounds pretty cool and looks good at the top of an annual cover, so, you know, whatever. I sort of assume at this point that crossovers, and really arcs in general, figure out their titles the same ways that we do. Which is to go back through the rough proofs and be like, okay, was there anything fun? <laughs> what can we use? And for the record, listeners, that's exactly what we do for our titles. We have no idea what they are until we proof the episode and we're like, how about that line? Maybe that line's a good one. There are occasional exceptions, but yeah, for the most part, we don't have titles till we go through the first proof and then are like, that's a catchy phrase. Let's use that one. Now, 
speaking of things that will only come up when they are relevant and catchy, Proteus is going to fall off the map for the time being. He is not going to be back for many, 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 many years until, I believe, the Necrotius storyline. I think so, yeah. And mad props, honestly, to the X-Writers for not overusing Proteus. I think that makes him a more effective villain. But this being a series of annuals in the 90s, we don't just have our big crossover story. We also have so many backup stories. So many. And I, I should admit, I should confess here that I thought we were just covering the Kings of Pain. And so I didn't read the backup stories this week. I'm very sorry. I will attempt good commentary on them anyway, because I can do that sometimes. But Miles, I am afraid that this one is on you. Well, I'll see what I can do. I'm just going to make it real quick, and then you can decide, Jay, and you listeners can also decide which, if any of them, to read based on what sounds cool. So, in New Mutants, we have a backup story called Close Encounters of the Mutant Kind. This is written by Judy Bogdanov and drawn by John Bogdanov. Oh, fuck yes. Yeah, like that uh, Boom Boom story in a previous New Mutants annual backup story. So, basically, the short version is that... Artie, Leech, and Taki accidentally convince a town that aliens are real by flying around in their UFO wheelchair thing, and everyone freaks out. One of the people that freaks out is an old lady who essentially becomes their new mom because they're super nice to her, and it's great. Oh, wait, is that the one who looks a lot like Anna Lee, who is Leech's de facto Morlock mama? Exactly. Very charming story, and I would totally read way more stories about these characters. Best Moppets and Tiny Baby Activist ever. I mean, pretty much, yeah. Then, in Uncanny X-Men Annual number 15, the origin of the X-Men, not the same as the Ed Pisker miniseries that's about to come out, presumably not nearly as good, we have Mojo going through the origin of the various X-Teams. It's essentially like one of our cold opens, but that covers decades worth of stuff. Wait, have we just worked out that Ed Pisker is secretly Mojo? Um, I'm gonna say I hope not, because that's terrifying. Uh, but regardless... It even ends with a what-like response to when Mojo doesn't believe that it's all real and tells the people that showed him this history that they must be making it up. It's charming, but also kind of forgettable, so whatever. In that same annual, we have Wolverine, the Enemy Within, which is a black-and-white story where Wolverine hallucinates having a fight with his adamantium skeleton. It's really pretty, otherwise totally inessential, but it is kind of a nice follow-up to Weapon X, which we covered recently, so that's a thing. This is a motif that I would like to see more of. I was gonna say it's because of Autumn, but no, really, I am one of those people who keeps Halloween in my heart all year. So let me just say, comic book creators, superhero writers, have your protagonists get in more fights with their skeletons, because that's awesome. I can totally get behind that. Penultimately, we have... A story in X-Factor Annual number 6 called Tribute the Third. It's a lovely story about Mystique coming to terms with Destiny's death. And as you can tell from the title, there have been two before this. There's going to be one after. There are four tribute stories. They're all lovely stories written by Peter David. We'll cover them later when we can really focus on them. There's also a crossover that runs through all the annuals featuring Freedom Force. This is called The Killing Stroke. And it is not about masturbation. Well, I mean, read between the panels, Jay. But at the time, this was very timely because it was occurring at around the same time as the Gulf War, the Iraqi War, uh, Operation Desert Storm. And in fact, the antagonists in this that Freedom Force go up against are even called Desert Sword, which was the initial name of ground operations in the Gulf War. Fucking really? Fucking really. So the deal is, and I'll keep this real quick because there's a lot, but let's just talk about the important stuff. Freedom Force, the government-sponsored team of mutants who mostly used to be the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, they go into Kuwait to retrieve a German scientist for the U.S. government. Right now, Freedom Force is Pyro, Blob, Crimson Commando, Super Saber, and Avalanche. 
Oh man, we're down to two murder grandpas, aren't we? Yeah, because we lost Stonewall and we're uh, about to be down to one, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So they fight a Middle Eastern team called Desert Sword. That's The Veil, Amanedi the Invisible One, Sirocco, Black Razor, and the Arabian Knight, who was in Contest of Champions way back in the day as an ethnic stereotype, so that's a thing. Oh, for fuck's sake. Right? Well, the fight goes badly. Super Saber dies! He's beheaded just like he almost was when the murder grandpas fought Storm. We told him to get a big metal gorget. I guess he never did. And Crimson Commando is seriously, seriously injured. The other is more minorly injured. The scientist can't be rescued, so Pyro kills him, and they all try to escape. It's all gone horribly wrong. Crimson Commando will go on to become a cyborg due to his injuries. This was apparently because he was going to be in... A planned but never actually executed Eric Larson relaunch of X-Factor. That would have been bizarre and fascinating, but Larson did end up using his design for the Cyborg Crimson Commando as a character named Super Patriot who would show up in the Savage Dragon and Freak Force. What a bizarre little connection. I kind of love it. What that means is that Crimson Commando getting torn the fuck apart in this story, it was supposed to lead to later development, and instead he just got torn the fuck apart, and it was sad. At least he got to turn into a cyborg later, so I guess that's a silver or platinum or steel lining. We should all be so lucky. I guess so. Anyway, an evacuation chopper takes Avalanche and Crimson Commando to relative safety, leaving Blob and Pyro to be caught since it's too risky to pick them up, and they surrender to Desert Sword, and I love their line at the end of this as Pyro says, Smut for freedom force, hoy. To which Blob responds, Not a bad scam while it lasted. Which is kind of perfectly in character. So... That's Kings of Pain. Those are our many backup stories. It has been an emotional journey, and we thank you for joining us. Oh, but we're not through yet, because you have questions. Blake Doris asks on Twitter, How do we reconcile Magneto's character motivation being the Holocaust with genetic superiority and occasionally genocidal ways? Alright, Blake. I'm gonna answer this with an answer that I know would piss Magneto off, but by which I stand. Which is to say, human nature. Continue. So... People are hypocrites. People engage in occasionally contradictory stances and behavior, and in particular, people who have found themselves in a marginalized position often feel the need and, you know, take the action to make themselves safe by occupying or asserting themselves to occupy a more central position. And the best way to demonstrate your centrality is, guess what? pushing someone else further to the margins. This is something you can see played out in macro and micro on a lot of scales and in a lot of contexts. I can't say this is specifically Magneto's motivation, but honestly, what it comes down to, I think, for me, is that he is a fallible character and the more believable for that. A Magneto who had survived the Holocaust and who would come out of it with an incredibly carefully saintly view of how to approach humanity would have been interesting, but much less interesting than this one. And I think Magneto underlines a point that we don't see often enough in fictional media, which is that it's possible to be a victim and a perpetrator or a bully at the exact same time, that being the one or having been the one isn't an inevitable defense from being the other, that, that our tragedies can shape us in a lot of different ways that are as dependent on individuals and circumstances as anything else. Well said. So, going on, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, oh man, we're going heavy this episode, let's see. 
After listening to episode 164 and being a straight white male, I have to ask, does Miles ever get harassed about being a straight white male when he's offering his opinion on either the X-Books or on social issues in general? How does he handle being told to check his privilege? Oh boy. Yeah, that's that's a thing. I feel like at some point we're going to need to put up a definition of harassment here, but in any case, you've got you've got an answer to this, so I'm going to step back here. Okay, so anonymous, you're clearly baiting us, but I'm going to answer the question anyway. Do I ever get called out on my opinions because I'm a straight white male? Okay, well, for starts, I'm more heteroflexible than straight, but that's not the point. The point is that, yes, I have. And you know what? It's usually a genuine learning experience that I end up grateful to have had. Uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, of course my instinct is to double down when somebody tells me I'm wrong. But the thing is, sometimes I am wrong. And sometimes that's because I haven't had the same experience as other people have. I live in a world that prizes and sees as default the demographic qualities I happen to end up with. And because of that, it's easy to assume that my experiences are universal. But they're not. I don't know what it's like to be black or female or religious or disabled or queerer than I am or a lot of things. So when I make an assumption that's incorrect or a joke that's hurtful in a way I don't intend, yeah, please call me the fuck out. Because I want to learn, because I want to be a better person, and if X-Men has taught us one thing, it's that we have nothing to lose and everything to gain from listening to people who are different from us. So yeah, that. Yeah, there's nothing I can or should add to that, so I will say that um, our show is entirely listener-supported, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the air from a range of fictional characters and entities. And so we'll turn it over to everybody's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. Ah, Fred Groves. You and your friend, Running Dog, took your students under your wings, hoping that you might prepare them for the future that awaited. But without Lou Walker by your side, you found yourself grappling with not only the harsh realities of a time you hardly know, but also the caprices of your heart. Good luck with that, buddy. You'll need it. And now, I am handing the mic to Proteus. In my perfect oblivion, I was free of the chaos, the unpredictability that plagues the rest of the world. I did not seek resurrection, but my parents thought otherwise. Still, their cruelty and negligence shall only fuel the better tomorrow that I shall gift upon the world. David Patton! The pain you inflicted upon my Gilbert half shall never be experienced by anyone in my world of order. Mission, comics, and art. You offered my Kevin half a home, but neglected him still. That isolation shall torment no other. The two of you birthed me. Now, behold as I birth perfection, which... By the way, it looks a lot like that one Star Wars game where you got to sit in the thing and it was all 3D and awesome and stuff. Uh, David Patton and Mission Comics and Art, did you ever play that game? We should totally play it. After I remake the world in my image! With the qualifier that there's also a similar Tron game, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Come see us 
with Louise Simonson and Chris Claremont at New York Comic Con, and check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Summer's family nonsense continues to escalate. As Cyclops faces a terrible retcon. Uh, choice. Choice.